Welcome to the Trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on, claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention, and violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today, and you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. Here is your host and narrator, Krista Smith. In the following episode, you're going to hear from some of the key members of the cast of The Trial of the Chicago 7, including Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Jeremy Strong, and John Carroll Lynch. The actors will be discussing their first impressions of the script, how they prepared for their roles, what they wanted to capture about the individuals they play, their experiences working with each other, and with writer-director Aaron Sorkin. You'll also hear their thoughts on the timeliness of the story and the striking parallels with what's been happening in America today. I first read the script about, I want to say, seven or eight years ago, and it landed on me like an ocean. That's the voice of Jeremy Strong, who plays defendant Jerry Rubin, and whose credits include his Emmy Award-winning performance in Succession and Sorkin's directorial debut, Molly's Game. I thought it was one of the most powerful and morally trenchant scripts I'd ever read. And and at the time where I was in my life, I think I would have been lucky to play a bailiff. But I remember thinking uh, this is the kind of story that I would swim to the ends of the earth um, to to serve and be a part of. So so. Uh, you know, Aaron is obviously a virtuosic screenwriter and one of the one of the one of the greatest screenwriters ever to work in the medium. One of the things that Aaron does with such such uh, beauty and deafness is he takes a story that should be dense at a moment in history that not everyone knows about that is um, and makes it light and funny. This is Academy Award winner Eddie Redmayne who plays defendant Tom Hayden, the leader of the Students for a Democratic Society, who later went on to become a California state senator. It's so funny and filled with jazz and characters that are, that are, that are so fully fledged. There are, you know, some of the great playwrights and screenwriters managed to do this in ensemble um, films or plays, but it's so rare in which every character has an arc and every character has a moment. And I think it's a testament to the, to the depth of the, stri- of the script and the, um, the quality of Aaron's 
um, uh, what the delicious quality of Aaron's writing that that he's attracted such a such a band of players. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, an Emmy winner for his performance in Watchmen, plays Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seale. He was struck by both the tone of the trial and the behavior of the judge, Julius Hoffman. You know, obviously there was, there was a lot of depth and uh, uh, um, more serious moments in the trial, but one of the first things that I was struck by was uh, the, the amount of comedy uh, in the trial. And, and I didn't believe that this judge was a real was a was a real figure. I had to go look up the transcript and the things with the messing up mess, messing up the names and how just the ridiculous this this the figure the character this judge was. It's something almost like a like out of a cartoon, you know, like a, a caricature. So, you know, I was very very shocked to see that some of the that you know the those moments a lot of those moments came directly from the transcript, you know, in the trial. And then I was I was just moved by you know, the importance of the script. John Carroll Lynch, who plays defendant Dave Dellinger, a leader of the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, otherwise known as the MOB, has worked with some of the foremost filmmakers of our time, including Martin Scorsese and David Fincher. He was particularly struck by Sorkin's ability to take a lengthy and complex series of events and marshal them into a dynamic and riveting narrative. This trial was uh, several months, and the events obviously leading up to the riots were, you know, several months as well. And uh, and you could make an entire, obviously an entire, uh, you know, series of these events and, and not exhaust them. So to create a sweeping narrative the way he does and to focus the, the, um, the material towards this central question of what it means to revolt, <laughs> what does revolution mean? And how does one uh, how does one go about doing that uh, with such a reactionary response? Uh, and I, I, he does an amazing job. When the actors first joined the project, they each brought varying degrees of familiarity with this chapter in history and the individuals they would play. Sasha Baron Cohen, whose body of work across comedy and drama has led to six Emmy nominations, an Academy Award nomination, and a Golden Globe win, was deeply knowledgeable about his character, defendant Abby Hoffman, one of the founders of the Youth International Party, otherwise known as the Yippies. When I was in university, my undergraduate thesis was about radical Jews in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And I found out that a lot of the Jewish radical students who went down to Mississippi in the South to uh, campaign for voting rights for the African-American community then went on to other radical causes. One of those guys was Abby Hoffman. And so basically that core left-wing group then became the the embryo for the anti-Vietnam War movement. And obviously, they were trained activists. So it was, it's been a subject that I've been interested in since, you know, my late teens. And Abby was one of those guys. Abby was down south protesting uh, for the, you know, protesting against discrimination and trying to get equal rights for the African-American community. And ironically, he was imprisoned using a law that was passed at the end of the civil rights movement that he was so integral in, you know, contributing to. 
In the following clip, you'll hear Abby Hoffman explain to the court that the defendants have been put on trial for their ideas. You know why you're on trial here? We carried certain ideas across state lines. Not machine guns or drugs or little girls, ideas. When we crossed from New York to New Jersey to Pennsylvania to Ohio to Illinois, we had certain ideas. And for that, we were gassed, beaten, arrested, and put on trial. When Steven Spielberg was first developing the film more than a decade ago, Baron Cohen was so passionate about playing Abby that he reached out directly about the role. Somebody who believes in justice so much that they're prepared to sacrifice their life is, you know, is a captivating character to play. I just hope I did him justice. John Carroll Lynch was familiar with the events of the trial for different reasons. His family was deeply involved in American politics. I was uh, six years old in 1968. Um, I, my, my family, especially at, the, at that time, was uh, highly involved in democratic politics. My father ran for the Senate in Colorado in 1968. He ran in the primaries and uh, was defeated in the primaries. He was the uh, chairman of the Democratic and uh, the Colorado Democratic Party uh, in 1968, and um, so he was, you know, he wasn't alive when I got this movie. So I would have asked him about about going. I think my grandfather was actually a, um, a delegate uh, to the '68. Convention. For other members of the cast, reading the script and joining the film would prove something of an education. Here's Eddie Redmayne. I'm an Englishman and knew an embarrassingly little amount about the Vietnam War. So for me, it was months of getting to just understand that, really, or try to grapple with that. And then to try and come to grips with this, this profound movement um, of, of, of what the Yippies were doing, of what the SDS were doing, of what MOBE were doing, and, and, and trying to get a, get a sense of, of this amazing spirit that rose up through, through um, a, a disaffected youth, and also learning about the Black Panthers. So every part of this has been a, a learning curve for me. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II had a hometown connection to his character. I uh, grew up in Oakland. The Black Panthers uh, in my household was a very, um, uh, had a very strong, you know, historical presence. It's hard to grow up in Oakland uh, and, and not know about the presence and the history of the Black Panthers. I lived in and grew up in West Oakland, particularly, uh, which is which is uh, uh, the area that the Black uh, that the Black Panthers uh, were uh, founded in. Um, and uh, you know, for me, this was you know a, a chance to. Uh, to tell sort of a hometown story or, or the story of, of, of what I consider to be a hometown hero. Um, I didn't know much about the trial of the Chicago 7 specifically, um, or really at, at all, um, actually, but I did know that at some point uh, Bobby Seale did uh, experience the, uh, the horrific uh, brutalization, you know, that, 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 that went into him being uh, bound and gagged in, in court. Um, but I did not uh, have the awareness that that took place um, in this in this particular trial, so that that was a learning experience, for, you know, uh, for me as well. Writer director Aaron Sorkin has spoken about the film being a painting, not a photograph, and the focus being how the story resonated today and getting at the essence of the characters. Jeremy Strong explains how that informed his approach. 
I think you don't ever want to uh, do an impersonation. And I know that that's not what Aaron wanted. Aaron didn't want, you know, Madame Tussauds wax museum of these characters sort of walking and talking. Um, I think, I think what I try and do is, um, is internalize as much as possible uh, through using every available resource at my disposal and really trying to internalize the essence of, of this, of this person. Um, and then, and then free yourself from any obligation of doing, you know, uh, uh, as you say, something imitative, um, and instead just to make it your own. And, you know, Aaron, Aaron obviously did so much research as we all did. And, and, you know, I, I looked at everything that could be found on Jerry Rubin. I read Jerry's books. I read the books that were written about Jerry. I read the trial transcripts and you get a, you start to, I think, uh, accumulate a composite sense of who a person was and also of their spirit. Cause you're not writing an essay about them. You're trying to understand them on a visceral level. So Aaron wrote a kind of distillation of who Jerry Rubin was. And for the purposes of this script, Jerry is sort of, uh, you know, he's a bit of the militant. He's a bit of a fiery militant, but he's also one of, you know, Ken Kesey's merry pranksters. You feel a tremendous responsibility playing an actual historical personage, especially someone who is iconic the way that Jerry uh, Rubin was and, and obviously that other man was. And, and, um, and you don't want to be hamstrung by doing, you know, uh, by trying to um, do an impersonation, you you want to try and find where they live inside of you, and uh, and 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 interpret it, you know, in, in your own way. The challenges of taking on a public character um, and someone well known, are, um, of course, in in the front of your mind. But Aaron was very strong to liberate me earlier early in the script as I was working on my voice and Tom had a very specific voice and you know we were talking about look and he said I don't want I don't want this to be a replica of Tom Hayden when we first spoke uh, Aaron and I about uh, Dave Dellinger I asked him how accurate he wanted to be in terms of the uh, the accent in terms of his look and he as he as you said he says he wasn't really interested in that but one of the advantages of playing somebody like Dave Dellinger is you don't know what he sounds like you don't know, really know what he looks like um and um and really i mean it's he wasn't that far of a stretch physically from me anyway so it didn't really uh, it didn't really uh, uh it wasn't really that hard to do but other people were a lot more famous a lot and particularly you know um Abby Hoffman and uh, um, others who who had a definitely a more um, recognizable, very specific accent, very specific delivery. So the, that was much harder for other actors to balance between what Aaron wanted to do in terms of the spirit of the the essence of the individual and uh, what what uh, people who were alive and are alive now who were alive at the time who idolized these uh, activists and how they and how they respond to somebody who's playing them so it's a it's a it's a it's a balancing act for some of us in the movie and for others like me I was much freer because you don't know what he sounds like really so 
it wasn't that hard to just stick uh, into a world of a kind of a naturalistic choice of, you know, as close to me as I, I could get and still play Dave Dellinger. Sasha Baron Cohen, meanwhile, had to contend with Abby Hoffman's distinctive accent. I mean, listen, I deeply regret taking on this character because it's bloody hard. I mean, the first thing is I had to learn the accent, which hopefully um, I got away with. Um, and that itself, it's a very specific accent. He's from Boston, but he's Jewish. He's educated in Brandeis. He's, in a way, there are two Abbeys. There's the public persona of Abbey where he's trying to inspire people, and there's the private Abbey. So trying to differentiate between those two. And there's the balance between the clown and the intellect. And obviously at the end of the movie, he is the one who's brought up to represent the Chicago 7, rather than Tom Hayden, who is the more obvious choice. So, you know, for this role, I've been reading a lot of his transcripts. And I've been blown away by his intelligence. He's so eloquent and so original uh, and so inspiring that it wasn't surprising that he led people to do things that were completely out of their comfort zone. I asked Yahya Abdul-Mateen II what he wanted to ensure that he captured about Bobby Seale. I wanted to make sure to capture um, Bobby's sense of uh, dignity I wanted him to be um, seen as a human, as a fully fleshed out uh, human being um, who had the right to uh, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You know, uh, this this was a film that showed a, showed Bobby uh, as uh, in a situation where his human rights, his basic rights, his rights as uh, granted by the Constitution of the United States, were being uh, threatened and uh, taken away, and that was in jeopardy. And so, in that situation, you know, the way that I work as an actor is, is, is I say, well, a good every good story is about is is a love story, and that love story uh, is about a character who finds something, an idea, or a person, or a quality. They find something that they love. And over the course of that story, if it's a good story, the events of that story is going to try to take it away from them. And it's up to that character to defend that idea or to defend that thing that they love and to try to take it back and protect it. And so in this case, Bobby was protecting his humanity. He was protecting his 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 manhood, his humanness, his rights. Uh, uh, to to be a black man in America, um, and 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 to be afforded all the rights that the Constitution says comes with that, and so I set out to protect uh, those those values in this film, and you know that was sort of my my approach as I began this journey. John Carroll Lynch has said that his character, Dave Dellinger, a Boy Scout troop leader in his fifties who had devoted his life to nonviolence and civil disobedience is the best person he'll ever play. He explains why. Well, two reasons. One of, his, one of which is I don't play a lot of really nice people, but uh, the most important reason is because in, in, his, uh, in his writings and uh, in his autobiographical work, he seems so morally clear from such, a, from such an early age. 
He uh, had a sense of right and wrong. He had a sense of what his interests were. He had a sense of um, of his need to serve other people. Um, from such an early age and with such a strong sense of, uh, of what I would say is moral clarity that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not to say he was a saint, but it was, uh, he was an amazing, an amazing human being. In the film, there's a central tension between Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden, rooted in their two radically different approaches to achieving change, as you'll hear in this next clip. Abby, you cannot talk back to the judge and Jerry. Did Jesus? Did you get a haircut just for court? I did. You did. You got a haircut for the judge. That is, <laughs> I can't. That is, that, that is so foreign to me. So is soap. Zing. No, let me explain something. It took you two less than five minutes to make us look exactly like what Schultz is trying to make us look like. I don't have a problem with what we look like. Tom Hayden's take on this trial from from where I could see was we need to get through this trial. We need to win. We need to not go to jail in order that we can continue doing our work, uh, work which he believed was vital, which was incredibly vital, and he continued to do after the events of this film. Um, Whereas, of course, for Jerry and Abby, this was this was about the politics, you know, theater of politics. This was about using the fact that the world was watching um, as an extraordinary moment, as a showcase to to um, to spread their ideas. Now, Aaron said something very beautiful about film, which is at the core of the emotion of it. Which is, he believes this film is about two brothers, uh, in some ways, metaphorically. Of which are Abby and Tom, which are two people that have perhaps the same goal, but completely different, completely different ways of approaching it. And that's when Aaron told me that that was uh, what I found kind of rooted um, this character for me. Sasha Baron Cohen points to the wisdom behind Abby Hoffman's provocative style and the strategy that informed it. Abby is secretly this very intelligent, astute man who went to Brandeis University. Um, I believe he studied psychology there. And he has a great awareness of the power of protest and the importance of symbolism and image and the media in protest. So he motivates the group continually to get in front of the cameras to do things that are newsworthy. Because there's no way that a group of hippies are going to win against the National Guard and thousands of police armed with bayonets and uh, armored vehicles. The only way they can win is by winning over the American public. And the way to do that is by getting in front of the cameras. I think, in a way, Abby influenced modern political protest. Um, The idea of doing public things that were newsworthy... As Sasha explains, that understanding of the power of optics extended to how Abby Hoffman presented himself in the world. He really actually changed himself to become the most appealing thing to get young people motivated to end the war. So that's part of the reason why he grew his hair. He realized that if he was going to get disaffected young people who, you know, look like hippies to actually go and protest the war, he should start to look like them. 
Jerry and Abby are both kind of the merry pranksters who who use that uh, in a way disguise as a Trojan horse for embedding real uh, serious activism. Here's Jeremy Strong again. And, you know, I think these guys would be on the front lines today. I think Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman would be in Minneapolis. They'd be in Louisville. They'd be in Atlanta. They'd be in Kenosha. They'd be in Portland. They'd be in Seattle. They'd be in Hong Kong. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II talks about the importance of the defendants being seen not as larger-than-life historical figures, but as everyday citizens, most of them young, all of them courageous. It's a very important part of our history to, you know, to tell. We should tell, you know, we should talk about the ages of people. You know, we should talk about uh, the fact that these were not, in some cases, extremely wealthy uh, people, that these were students. These were young people with a passion and with an idea who, in a lot of ways, they had uh, some political intelligence. They had uh, or, 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 or political Education, you know, they had a college education. They had, uh, you know, uh, some uh, uh, grassroots resources. But what they had most was passion and courage. I think about Martin Luther King, 39 years old, I believe, when he was murdered or, you, you know, assassinated. Uh, these and throughout history, after their death or after, you know, the big events, they become historical characters when in actuality, there's, it's important for us not to lose sight of the message that they are that they are everyday people who finally were fed up with something to the uh, enough that they actually went out and did something about it and organized and took a chance and spoke up and a lot of times they didn't know what was on the other side of them speaking up but they knew that they that they had had to had to speak because they had the conviction to do it that's an important message because that uh, at the same time in invites um, everyday citizen, the everyday person to stand up and put themselves also on the front line or find their own place in the cause. For the ensemble cast, the courtroom scenes provided a front row seat to observe their fellow actors at work, as Jeremy Strong explains. We were in that courtroom in Patterson, New Jersey for, I mean, I think at least a month. And, and, And for most of that time, our job was to just sit there at trial, uh, you know, with 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 the tedium of what a six month trial would have been. I mean, I think there's a part of you that is aware of that. This is basically like the 1984 Olympic Dream Team, and everyone is Michael Jordan. Um, but then, but then, I think, at least the way I work, uh, I I have to kind of block all of that out and try and exist as much as possible in the in the reality of the of the circumstances so really it's just tom and and uh and abby and bill Kunstler and you know and and judge julie uh and you know and relating to them the way that you, you that we would have related and which involved a lot of playing hangman and dice games at the table and you know i had a lot of tricks up my sleeve that I tried to play on on Judge Hoffman and and that kept getting me in trouble with Aaron and the producers and you know but it was a it was it was a wonderful creative environment and yeah I mean of course I mean these guys are all Mark Rylance is like a, a hero of mine um and 
has been for so many years. So it was tremendously exciting and also a challenge, you know, because everyone works very differently. And it was a bit like having a bunch of first chairs from all these orchestras all over the world. And our composer is also our conductor. And, you know, I think Aaron felt daunted by that task. You know, he's written a nigh perfect script and it is like a piece of music. And then at the same time, each of these actors and instrumentalists are so different and trying to kind of tune everybody up and, and get us all playing the same piece of music, I think was, was the, was the challenge. And, and, you know, I think Aaron did a, did, um, did a really wonderful job creating that uh, environment. This movie was done in an, in an incredibly disciplined way with a massive amount of people who need to get coverage, and and they did a beautiful job doing it. It's beautifully shot. To conceive of those things and to be as disciplined as he was in the making of it um, and still manage to direct, uh, I think, a cast who... Um, represent every, you know, potential house and style of the acting world. <laughs> um, we come from very different backgrounds. There are classically trained actors. There are um, actors who grew up on sets. There were actors who, um, who um, you know, um, are method-based actors, people who you went to Yale and, and then everybody in between um, represented at at the defense table and at the prosecution's table, and then you add Frank Langella, you know? So uh, it's a lot of, of really uh, heavy eddies and currents of what needs to be said to individual actors. And there were many times where it was herding cats. There were, there were many moments where everybody's um, interests to make the movie better to serve the movie started to create cross-current agendas um, in the way they worked. Um, and, um, and he was able to, um, to answer those questions and to maintain a forward motion uh, in his workday. That was very impressive. The dynamic between Bobby Seale and the judge leads to one of the most shocking moments in the film. In this next clip, you'll hear the tensions escalating. Would the defense like to cross-examine the witness? Yes. I'm sitting here saying that I would like to cross-examine a witness. Only lawyers can address a witness. My lawyer is Charles Gary. I'm tired of hearing that. Couldn't care less what you're tired of. What did you say? I said it would be impossible for me to care any less what you are tired of, and I demand to cross-examine the witness. Sit in your chair and be quiet, and don't ever address this court in that manner again. Yaya talks about what it was like to work with Frank Langella, who plays Judge Julius Hoffman. Oh man, that was uh, some of the highlights uh, of uh, of that of that uh, of that experience. Um, you know, when being when being on such warring sides, it, 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 it's it's best to do that. In my experience as an actor, when you have a good camaraderie, because then you can because you know arguments. Arguments, they're, they're in the moment, they're heated in their passion, but they kind of feel good because you want it because it's about scoring. You know, it's about one, one-upsmanship. We had a lot of fun in between the takes. Frank and I, I'd go up to him, I'd, talk, I'd, act, I'd ask him for career advice, or he'd ask me about, you know, the work that I've done. And 
say, you know, you're a very talented young man. I hope that you keep on, you know, you, you know that, that you keep on doing this. I'm glad that you found this profession. And I'm talking to him about, you know, about his work and about how I, you know, appreciate him as well. So, you know, Frank and I built, built a very, very good, good, good report during the making of this film. Aaron also knew that in Bobby Silver, there was a character that needed to be treated delicately, that needed to be given a lot of attention, that the actor needed to make that as an actor that I needed to be safe. So he made sure that I had everything that I needed uh, on set. He made sure that my own humanity and my own dignity was never questioned or was never in jeopardy throughout the entire filming process. Uh, so I'm, I'm deeply appreciative to Aaron for that. The trial of the Chicago 7 took more than a decade to get made, and yet the story feels as timely as ever. Here's Jeremy Strong. I remember at the table read before we started, and Aaron said, you know, this, this movie is, is about today. It's always been about today. And what we do is we send a transponder back to this moment in 1968, 1969, which, which will return us to the moment they were in now. And I think little did he know just how much that would be true. I can only say that Aaron had this script and had been working on getting this thing made for several years. And, um, and, uh, and there's something about him and the zeitgeist that seemed to dance because, the, you know, he, he's going to put the film out and, and uh, the world decides to go completely sideways. It's also the, the movie meeting the moment, which, which I don't know that you can game out. I don't know that you can plan. But some people seem to have um, an, avatar, an avatar kind of, uh, you know, lightning rod for these things. He also talks about really big themes, really big questions of the American conversation. And he, he has for his, you know, entire writing career. And, um, and that's, uh, that's uh, part of the reason why he's always so close to the conversation uh, that's being had outside his sets, I think, because he's having those conversations in his work all the time. It's interesting, that, isn't it, when pieces of art or um, creative things, when they find their way into the world and... And there are a whole load of factors that, that probably catalyze that, but it could not be more pertinent. And it's so interesting because that's, I suppose, the role of film is to, to in some way, well, to entertain and to thrill, but also to reflect what's going on in our world. Um, and at a time in which I feel like all of us are having to repeat as a mantra, remember our history, learn from our history, um, this specific moment feels s s sensationally important. Somehow, synchronistically, this time, uh, more than any of the other times, this time is when the movie needed to be made and when this movie needs to come out into the world in, in terms of what's at stake, in terms of this movie as a celebration of protest and dissent and this sort of eternal battle of freedom and oppression. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, you'll be hearing from some of the creative minds who helped realize the world of the film, including editor Alan Baumgarten. I love working with writer-directors because the vision is so pure and intact. Aaron writes a script, and he literally hears it in his head when he writes it. 
The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.